Welcome to episode 328 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We got some more polity. We do. Lots more polity. Yes. Yes. This is my favorite polity. I know it is. As people would probably assume from the title of the episode. It's the P squared policy, if you will. The double P. Coming coming at you very soon. Yes. And should we just leave it like that? Because somebody will say like, yes, I either know exactly what you're talking about. And other people are like, just tell me. How about you just tell me what the P's stand for? No, no, no. Why don't you just tell me what the P's stand for? No, 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 listener. It's coming for you. Just just wait a little bit. You'll, you'll love it when we get to it. So let's do a little affirming and a little denying so that we get, I feel like we need to get warmed up before we get into some more polity conversations because historically, polity makes for excellent podcasting. It's what everybody wants. That's why, for <laughs> instance, if you go and search church polity, there's so many daily podcasts that just are rocking yes. deep conversation about church polity and governance and processes and assemblies. I know those are ubiquitous, so I guess we're just playing into the, we're just maybe screaming into the ether here, but just in case, that was all sarcasm, just in case (laughs) it did not translate properly. So let's get warmed up then before we talk about polity and do some affirming and some denying. What would you like to start with, Tony? Why don't we start with my affirmations? Okay, go ahead. So um, people who have been listening to the show over the past, I don't know, month, month and a half would notice that I've got some common themes. One of the common themes that you might not have picked up on is that a lot of what I'm affirming have come from YouTube videos that I've seen. And the reason for that is because when I'm taking care of the baby, uh, oftentimes I'll put a gate up across the family room door and then I'll kind of block off some things and I'll dump all his toys out and I'll put YouTube videos on. It's noise in the background. I can kind of, uh, I can kind of appropriate it passively. I don't have to be actively like thinking about what I'm watching or managing it so I can take care of the baby. And I came across this YouTube channel today. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, It's called geometryptamine. So like geometry combined with the word tryptamine. So it's, it's videos like close up videos of this guy drawing these really intricate geometric patterns, but it's like, most of it uses a compass. So he's he's like zoomed in close on like the middle of a circle. And then he like puts the compass down and you watch him draw all of this. And he like, I don't know what he does with the audio, but it's like super crisp. So you can hear like the pen scratching across the surface of the uh, of the paper. And it's like, I've never really bought into the, the whole like ASMR craze. Yeah. But I actually kind of got like that sort of like tingly feeling today when I was watching it. And I don't know if I was thinking about like, man, I bet this would make a good ASMR video. And I like manufactured it or there's actually something there. But it's it's pretty sweet. So like he he'll start off with, you know, like a circle. And then based on where he puts the compass and stuff, he'll create all these really cool geometric patterns. Most of the videos are like five to ten minutes long. And it's just they have weird names. So like this one's called Zen Geometry Pentagram. I don't know if like there is some sort of like spiritual component to it. A lot of them are named that way. But I think that's probably just because like they make patterns that look kind of new agey. I don't think there's I, I haven't found a single video that has any any verbal audio at all. Like it's all just 
like video of him drawing these cool images. So check it out. If you find something sketchy, then, then turn it off. But I don't think there's anything sketchy there. But disclaimer, I've only watched maybe four or five of these videos. It's pretty cool, though. By the way, that's good advice for all of life. If it's sketchy, <laughs> turn it off. Yeah. That applies equally to things you're watching on TV, Netflix, Hulu, or geometry. Geometry. <laughs> turn it off. I like that kind of stuff. I'll be honest. I have found myself sometimes watching those. I can't get into the videos that are like workers. For, it would be something like the most relaxing videos. And it's like either like fabricated, like even if it's just um, like design things yeah. in like CAD or something like that, they don't actually exist. And they're like cutting shapes yeah. or like trying to make you feel relaxed. But I can get down with that. And in part, I think because for me, it's like this weird tension. It's almost like an augmented chord. It's the resolution. It's like when you start yeah. to see the compass work, you think, oh, here's a lot of chaos. And you want to see that resolution of it coming into its own, the, the full shape being brought all together. Yeah. It's intensely satisfying. And yeah. again, I think this has to be some of what God has implanted within us, of course, that he is a God of order. So even these things, these are brilliant shapes being brought to life and being connected in ways that we can't conceive of initially. And so when we see them get resolved. There's almost like this great peace or this great resolution yeah. that happens within us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I think you're right. Like this sort of, sort of sounds a little bit weird, but like math is the language of the universe. Like, like everything yeah, in is. the universe can be, I mean, everything in the creating universe, I guess I should, should clarify that everything in the creative created universe that has a physical structure can in some way be articulated by math. Like obviously there's spiritual and non-material realities that cannot be articulated by math, but this is like an example of it is like a simple thing, like a point and then a, like a line that is equidistant from that point and combining different distances in creative ways. Like that's just the sort of the mystery of how the universe is right. woven. Like there's no good reason if there is not a designer why we should see designs emerge from see seemingly random choices. Now, not all of these are random. This guy has, um, you can tell because he's got some like almost like structure points that he's hitting. He's, he's designing these to bring about a certain effect. But you could you could do this where if you just put a compass down, drew a circle, change the, change the size of it, put another compass point down, drew a circle, you would actually see a design, something that looked like design emerge from these random exactly. inputs. And I just think that's something so beautiful. And like, there is something about this. It's just really like, if you're looking for a way to just sort of like push the craziness of your own thoughts out a little bit and like clear them out, not in Again, not in like the weird new age meditative emptiness, but like sometimes we need to just like block our brain's ability to think a little bit so that we, it's the same thing like counting sheep does for you. Like you disengage your, uh, like that cycle where you can't stop thinking when your thoughts are running. This is one of those things that could do that is just watching it and kind of focusing on the way that the circles are being drawn and the sound, I, the sound just really amazed me. I thought it was so cool. Just hearing the like pen scratch across the paper was so like satisfying on a really deep level. Well, there is something like therapeutic about both those things, aren't there? It's like you have the compass creating these lines, yeah. pulling shapes and images out seemingly of thin air. Right. And then that probably the sound of the pen echoing that. Yeah. It's, yeah. kind of, it's. I mean, sometimes when somebody creates a YouTube channel, they get it right. Yes. It sounds like this person got it right. Like they're keeping their knitting close and they're yeah. in that lane and yeah. they're doing exactly what you want. You don't want probably anything more from this. And I would argue, 
and I'm going to check this out. Like music would be distracting to that. You don't want like right. some like weird ethereal music. It's actually more satisfying to have the full experience of hearing the pen come yeah. across the page and drawing those lines as your eyes seeing it come into shape. Yeah. Some of them have some background noises. Like one that I, one that I watched had like, it sounded like he was in a park doing this. I don't know if he actually was in a park or if he just added a track that made it sound like it was outside. There's actually another similar channel that I found. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it does these things that are called pendulum waves. Have you heard of these? Oh yeah, for sure. So like basically like it's a line of dots on a like some sort of pattern or a circle and they they move across that circle at a steady rate but because the circles are long like the arcs are longer when they hit the other side it makes a noise but because it takes longer like the noises change and fluctuate when they hit and it's something so there's something that points to the fact of a di divine creator that you could just do something like that. And it actually order and structure and patterns emerge from seemingly random inputs. And I don't know how, how else to describe it, but that's just what happens. And I think that that's what happens almost across the board with, with chaos. Like there is no real such thing as chaos because eventually right. chaos will order itself. I know that like the law of thermodynamics, blah, blah, blah. I get that. But like entropy should have, according to like physics, Entropy should have like collapsed the universe in on itself yeah, it's you know, billions chaos. of years ago, but it hasn't. There's no outside energy input other than the fact that this is a created system that God is maintaining. Yeah, that's right. And the last thing I'll say, because people are like, well, you just get to the P squared conversation. <laughs> like, what happened? You just hijacked your own conversation and we ended up in geometry and math. The last thing I want to add to that is what really blows my mind is all those things, like you said, there are plenty of YouTube videos where people like, let's say, hang like a paint can on a pendulum and then put yeah. a hole in the bottom and just let it go and you get these beautiful designs. And in part, they're doing it because they don't know how it's going to turn out. They just know it'll turn out beautiful because mm -hmm. it will be ordered. All of those things, everything you described, even entropy itself can all be, you would look at those things and say like, well, they're amazing. Like, how can we describe them? The fact that you can build equations that describe them is like the next level up. Right. So it's not like here's this just random phenomenon, like it looks beautiful to the eye, but that you can actually put it in a language that it could be replicated by somebody else just by nature of these expressions. And the expressions themselves are ordered according to their own rules so that therefore pushes out against the chaos. Yeah. That is incredible. So I love that like any line you see, is actually merely a formula or a function that can be written and replicated and appreciated. It's incredible. Yeah. And you can only do that if there's actual real order in the universe. And the order is like impounded. It's insulated. It's cemented in. It That's the only reason you can get these two things. So, yeah. man, like, is this what we're going to talk about now? Because like, I, I could just go on about I feel this like it could be, but, but it probably shouldn't be. So, Jesse, what are you affirming today? Let me switch it up a little bit. And... I, I want to say you could chalk this affirmation up to like things that are obvious, but I don't know that's fair. And I think that sometimes, again, we talk about theology as this classroom from which you never graduate. You're always at the desk. And sometimes you're getting different levels of knowledge and appreciation. But at the center of that is just God's goodness toward us, both the common grace, but then his unmerited favor to his children whom he gathers onto himself and how he does all the verbs. That's what God does. And so I was just thinking this week, I mentioned this before, and I don't mean to, to placate this idea too much, but I'm trying to complete this uh, massive certification in the field in which I work. So I have one final test on this, and I've been trying to invest as much time I can. And you and I have talked about how even when it comes to something like this, 
the the common grace of God is present in our lives, but also how he just works in these normative ways using normal things, ordinary means. And so study is one of those things. You have to dedicate yourself to something. And so I'm realizing, of course, all over again, how dependent upon I am on God for all of knowledge, and we all are. But here's what was really hitting me. I'm affirming with the objectiveness of the good news of the gospel. It's just objectively good. Uh, no matter which way you try to cut this, no matter how you try to dress it up a little bit or use more fancy theological terms, objectively, it's just good news. And here's why. I'm in the midst of doing all these answering practice questions, trying to do practice tests. And I can just say from where I sit right now, how good it is that when it comes to being in a relationship with God, of having his unmerited favor and approval, that you don't have to take a test to earn that. I'm sure some people will think like, listen, I do okay on that test. Uh, even if you throw out, let's say, the, these unachievable standards that God has for us, even if we just somehow set that aside for just a second and you think, you know what? I know enough to be cogent. I can express. I can be articulate. It doesn't matter. We're all failing this thing. That, that's all I have to say. It's yeah. like, and to not have to worry about somehow performing in a way that gets you to the place where you get the very thing that you long for. At the end of the day, when you're actually having to take a test for some kind of certification, it's nice to come home and know that that is not the way God operates. Yeah. And then in fact, the test itself has already been passed. Like it's, it's already, Jesus already earned, like this is going to get super weird. Get ready. Uh, hopefully not sketchy. So don't turn me off, but you can, the fact that you can rely on Jesus who has already passed this test, who's full obedience to the father has garnered everything that was necessary. And then somehow it's like, not even that you ride his coattails because that's not fair enough. It's that you get the perfect score as well. I wish I could do that right now. I wish yeah. somebody would be able to say to me, listen, I will take that test for you and you'll get all the credits. And I would say, even with all the work I've done, I would, I would take that deal. This is such an amazing thing. And not until, again, I was pressed with having to perform in a way that seems beyond my ability was I really just reinvigorated with this idea that the gospel is just objectively good news. Do you ever have those moments where like somebody was trying to teach you a lesson like 20 years ago and you just didn't get it at the time and then all of a sudden something happens and it just clicks? So here's the lesson that I should have learned apparently in first year Hebrew like 15 years ago in college. My professor used to do this thing that actually drove us all nuts at the time, and he never explained it. And maybe he didn't mean this to be a picture of the gospel, but it really was. This was Hebrew class. And so every time we would have a quiz, he would bring this little mug of uh, sticks around. And the sticks, there was two mugs. One of them had uh, 10 red, uh, nine red sticks and one black stick. And the, the part that was colored was in the mug, so you couldn't see it. And then in the other mug, he had uh, a stick with everybody's name on it. All the names were down, so you couldn't see it. And so the first name that you would draw would be the uh, the red or the name stick. And whoever the name stick was, that person could potentially be taking the test for the whole class. Everybody would get the same score that that person got on the test if they drew the black stick next. And so I remember real distinctly one time I woke up, I was late for class. I hadn't studied for the quiz at all. I got in there and we didn't know whether or not the grade uh, for the quiz was going to come for everybody until after that stick got drawn after the, after the quiz was done. And I took the quiz. I totally bombed it. I probably got like two out of 50 questions, right? And so I'm sitting there like, oh man, I just failed this quiz. And all of a sudden the black, the black one comes up. 
So the person who was taking the test for all of us, I got their score instead. And they got a hundred percent. Like this is a real wow. thing that happened. And like, that is actually like the, one of the most perfect pictures of the gospel that I can, can think of. I don't think that was the intention. I think this was actually like a clever teaching tactic to make sure everybody was prepared for the test because you might be taking it for everybody. But it was a perfect picture of the gospel because I failed the test, but I still got all the credit because someone else took the test on my behalf. And like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like the gospel, the, the God's test is a pass fail test. And the bad news is that you have to get a hundred percent to pass and nobody does that. Exactly. The good news is that somebody else got a hundred percent and he's going to give you that score instead. And like, we don't think of it in that way. And I think you're right until you're forced to perform and perform in some way that there's real stakes and like, yes. it's hard to actually succeed. You don't get that. And I think we, because we, especially I think Christians, because we have lived our lives as Christians, not feeling the weight of the law in that sort of crushing way. I think sometimes we lose sight of the reality that the law is this crushing taskmaster that apart from Christ, none of us could bear up under it. None right. of us could, could do anything that would even come close to succeeding. And I, I think that's a good takeaway. Yeah, it's a bit like I'm going to mix the metaphors that we talked about before with Pilgrim's Progress and just life in general. This idea that, let's say, you know, Moses uh, stands before Christ and is just like, what's up? How's it going? You run into Moses and he beats you up. Yeah. He just beats you up. <laughs> like, it's a different relationship. And I think, of course, there's a lot in what you said that's like right on. It's this idea that when it matters, none of us would be able to do it. And that's a side, again, I'm, I want to be clear, like it's aside from saying, just the standard that you'd have to achieve is unachievable. But this idea that, you know, who hasn't taken a test and maybe gotten one or two answers right because they guessed. And what we're talking about here is the means and the ends have to be totally aligned. It is to have this like perfect knowledge, perfect performance. Yeah. And when your eternity is at stake, I just have been meditating recently on how lovely it is. There's just no stress there. There's just no stress. And I just think that that's so kind of God that, the way that he would establish for us to become his children is pure adoption in that he does all the work and he brings you into the family. And so therefore, even your performance, so to speak, your life after the fact is one that's not born up under the law. It's born up under the sense of obedience because you've been transformed and changed as your inner workings, as they were, are so different that they start to comport with the law. But never is the law ever this thing by which you feel like if you do not perform properly, that you will somehow be displaced or cast yeah. out. Yeah. That is, I mean, that's what Jesus says. He says, come unto me. I'll never cast one out who comes unto me. And of course, we know that coming itself is something that the Father premeditates, that he himself draws us. And so again, God is doing all the verbs here. So I'm taking great comfort as I study for my own test that God does all the things. And through ordinary means, in my way of participating by way of obedience to be faithful to things that he called me to, I'm entrusting him to do what he wants but he gets to do it. And so it doesn't remove responsibility for action in my own studying, but it does give me a really great and different kind of just day-to-day -day appreciation for the fact that when I have a day where I have performed horribly yeah. in my own studies, that I've gotten a lot of questions wrong and I thought I should have gotten right. When I come before the Father, I just never have that. Yeah. And man, I've been so thankful for that recently. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's a good word. All right. Let's deny some stuff. What are you denying against? So... I turned 40 in 23 days from the date of this recording. It's coming for it's you. It's coming for me. And I'm, I'm not actually that like, 
I know some people get really, really like anxious about their birthdays and about age. I've never been that guy and I'm not right now, but I'm just denying uh, just the way that our bodies break down. And this is like one of those like adventures in Genesis three kinds of things. I don't know what I did, but I went to eat my sandwich today for lunch and it feels (laughs) like I got kicked in the jaw. There's nothing that happened. I didn't get kicked in the Uh jaw. I didn't fall. I didn't hit anything. I think probably I just slept weird and now my jaw hurts. Like this is the world that we live in because of sin. Like I just feel like I got, and I I used to take martial arts. So I know what it feels like to get kicked in the jaw. It really feels like I got kicked in the jaw. Like it hurts to open my mouth. It's, it sucks. And I don't know what it was. So I'm just denying the breakdown of our body and denying feeling like I got kicked in the jaw. Yeah. Well, here's the thing The at any point in time, when you're younger, getting kicked in the face or punched in the face in martial arts is the 13 year on equivalent of eating a sandwich. Mm-hmm. That's how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also like, I also look at the things that my son does as a baby that like don't, don't seem to phase him. Yeah. So like he, sometimes when he wakes up and he is, and I, we don't take him out of the crib right away because we're trying to do sleep training or, you know, we got to get a bottle, whatever it was sometimes. And he doesn't have very many teeth. Sometimes he will just chew on the edge of the crib out of frustration and I'm like, if I bit down on the crib hard enough to leave teeth marks, which he does sometimes, I, I wouldn't be able to like close my mouth for a week. It would just hurt right. so bad. Or like if I crawled around on my knees all the time, like 24 hours a day, I wouldn't be able to walk. He just doesn't bother him at all. It's crazy. No, listen, those new bodies are going to be fantastic. To be glorified yeah. is a real thing. And I think the older you get in some ways, God has, again, given that to us as this I don't know, way to kind of really, really lean into that idea and look yeah. forward to it. Not just this intellectual ascent to, well, wouldn't it be great to be glorified? But part of that glorification is the reunification of like our bodies and souls where our bodies, we're just going to be able to do whatever we want. Yeah. In some ways, I think, I, I have no grounds for this necessarily biblically, but my sense is that whatever age we look, I have no idea that the scripture is ambiguous yeah. about that and probably for good reason. But I like to think that we're going to have like that baby-esque kind of like flexibility yeah. and wherewithal. That that's all going to be part and parcel of our experience. It'll just be like, it'll just be chill. Like do whatever you want. Yeah. Like, it'll just be amazing. It won't be like, can you imagine living a life where you don't think about your body at all? Yeah. Like what, what something's going to do to you, like whether or not if you shovel too much or you move furniture or what, whether you should eat this or that thing. Like I think anybody who's, garnered some age has acquired some years yeah. to understand that things just change and when you're young you think i'll be fine i see everybody around me experiencing that that probably won't be me yeah and then you find out oh yeah eventually it will it's be you. yeah on a side note a couple of weeks ago we talked about that you had injured your back while helping me yes. make some furniture and awesome. i was reading uh the book treat your own back and i've discovered after finishing the book that the advice that i gave you for what to do when you throw your back out was the worst possible advice I could have given you. Really? Yeah. So I was like, all right, Jesse, I just lay on your back, just lay down on your back and just try to like, try to relax, like flat on your back. It's like the worst thing. Should have laid you on your stomach and told you just to like take deep exhales. Oh man. That's in your defense. First of all, people should know you're super helpful. Came, came to my, my need in an hour where I was like, what is happening to my body? My body was rebelling against me. It was fighting me and I was trying to stop it. Uh, but also in your defense, I really couldn't get up. Like, you I remember know. how I was like, I can't get up. Yeah. You were just like, that's fine. Let me get you some leave. <laughs> just hang out here. Yeah. And I remember 
your wife, my sister came in. She was talking to me for a period of time, I think trying to distract me. I did take a phone call at one point. So I was like, and I'm just on the floor. And I thought, this is where I live. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to quit my job. You guys <laughs> just have to pull up with me in your family room right next to your couch. So <laughs> I I totally hear that. And I think like for, so I kind of want to, is it okay for me to piggyback on your denial? It because is. it is. I like it. It's really, really good. And, you know, I don't know what age people think that we are. Maybe our voices betray us or we've talked to at least or given mile markers about things that are part of our experience at some point in our lives. And people think, but I'm 42. I'm really excited to welcome you to the 40s. It's great here. You're going to love it. <laughs> Sometimes you eat a sandwich and you think, did a horse just kick me in the jaw? So it, it definitely happens, but there's also something glorious about coming into a place where we start to realize that we have these limitations. And I think that there becomes an age where you start to really have to reconcile with yeah. that. Well, you know that you're blessed and that you don't have a certain degree of health problems and complications of those who have gone before us, yeah. their parents and grandparents. And yet you realize that actually that life is coming for you. Just yesterday, I went for a run very late in the evening, so it was dark. And I was finishing the run. I was like, just a short run. So I was in like mile three of this run. And this course takes me, I have to end going slightly uphill. And I'm running. I actually have, my wife is very concerned about me running in the dark for, for good reason. But she made me put on her vest. Uh, I don't really like this vest. I feel like it's it touches me in weird places. That's <laughs> not exactly what I meant. But I just don't like the way it feels. It's like constricting on my chest. Anyway, I call it party vest because it has these like, bright flashing lights like it's the strobing effect so i'm wearing this i got a headlamp on like i'm sure that people when they see me are like look at this fool who is this bearded, <laughs> big bearded fool with these lights just like he's like boasting and just runs the neighborhood so i'm running last mile of my run and all of a sudden i hear like very strong pounding footsteps behind me like enough to startle me to think somebody is chasing after me and i look and it's like a younger guy who's who's bigger than I am, <laughs> taller than I am, like kind of built, just pounding the pavement, like coming up behind me. And I'm thinking to myself, listen, bro, if you want some, come and get some. So I'm like, I'm not going to let this guy, guy beat me. Now, he's probably half my age. And of course, <laughs> he just smokes me <laughs> like I'm standing still. And I'm just thinking, this is not going to happen. So I'm trying to chase this guy down. And finally, what happens is like our paths literally part ways. But I told my wife afterwards, I was like, I saw him start to slow down. And I was so tempted to just keep running out of spite to try to catch up with him. And then I thought, you are 42. <laughs> just let the run happen and be grateful that God has given you this opportunity to be out there to move your legs around for a little bit. So I'm with you. Like, I think that, you know, someday I want to be able to run faster than I've ever run before. And I think that's only going to happen now in heaven. But We've got to look forward to that. I don't think there's anything wrong with looking forward to yeah. what it means to have a glorified body yeah. and to enjoy that in the presence of Christ forever. So I think we can kind of get behind that. And so, yeah, getting old is, is not awesome. But there are, of course, those listening that have more experience with that than we do. And to, to you all, I say, yeah, we'll see you soon. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I think I've never had that experience, not because it hasn't happened to me, but it just hasn't hit me the same way where I, I realize all of a sudden that someone who's younger than me can do something I can't do anymore. Yes. I have that experience when someone who I used to aspire to be like, like when their age confronts me. So here, here's what I'm thinking. 
when I was in high school, my, my youth pastor, my middle school, high school, my youth pastor's name was Chris Studensky, and he was a cross-country runner. And so we used to have all these different games at camp that involved running, and a lot of them were like running at distance, like games where you like capture the flag games across all of camp. And I remember it used to be like there was a group of us that were like, we're going we're gonna to catch Chris this time. Like, we're going to get him. And I remember... I remember like that was always the pinnacle, like Chris Studensky, he was the pinnacle of like what it meant to be a runner. And I was never a huge runner, but like I played soccer. So I could, I could, I could do a little bit of a sprinter, a little bit of a run once in a while. And I remember, uh, he, you know, he was the youth pastor and then he went off to plant a church. And then I joined that church after college and he, he came in one day and he was using this as a sermon illustration of what it means to get old. And he said, you know, I was a cross country runner in high, in high school and college. And, you know, I took a few years off and I, I run through the neighborhood, but, and I feel like I'm still in, in pretty good shape. He's like, I, I entered a half marathon the other day and I got beat by a 12 year old. And I was like, now I feel old because Chris Studensky can't beat a 12 year old in a half marathon. Uh, and I'm not even thinking about how impressive it was that this guy who was probably 45, 50 years old at the time could yeah. take, when he said a few years off of running, he was talking like, 10 years off of any sort of actual like trained running program. Uh, he could still just like enter a half marathon and finish without like any real training or workup. That was impressive in its own right. But he was like, yeah, I got, I got beat by a 12 year old. Her name was Susie. And uh, she just smoked past me. Like just, she just right in front of me. And I was like, man, I feel, I feel old about that. Or when you start to realize that the character you resonate with on a TV show is no yeah. longer like the protagonist. who's probably, yes like 20 years old, but like their old, their old friend or the old neighbor across the yard, when you start to resonate with them instead, or the parent yeah. of a show, that's when you start to realize it. Listen, that's the crazy thing about the way that God has orchestrated all this. Yeah. It, it moves on you and you find yourself going through these phases that you can't be prepared for. And that's actually the beauty I think of trusting yeah. in the Lord, even in your relationships, you know, I love my wife. And when I married her, I didn't, I didn't know what kind of wife she would be or a mother or grandmother. Like you don't know those things. Right this is like the way in which I think we're always drawn back to the father as our source of hope and trust and knowledge and truth. And in terms of like, yeah, I, we could speak so much more about this. I, I'm totally with you. And I think that if anybody has participated in any kind of physical activity and they've aged into that, they realize that yeah. very thing. And I'm, I'm certainly with uh, your former pastor. I, the last half marathon I did, uh, there was, I, I will never forget this. There was a like, and this is like the later, the latter miles where you're just, you're just straight out beat. And at that point for me, I was trying to survive. And this is a larger story. We'll say for another time, but I was trying to survive it in part because my wife said something that she thought would be encouraging. And then somehow just deflated us. <laughs> but beyond that, what happened is we're in the final, I'm in the final miles and I look over and here's this like tiny little petite woman, again, probably like mid thirties. And she passes me like easily, like, and she looks like she's having the best run of her life <laughs> at the very end. And it's not just that she passes me, she's pushing a double stroller. Yeah. So, and she, and I think the thing that really puts like the icing on the cake was she said some encouraging words. And I want to be like, how dare you yeah. get out of here? <laughs> Two thoughts and then we'll move on. One, I feel like we are somehow in the middle of a Napier Gatsby skit. Like we we yes. are the yeah. bit. Uh, yes. And the second thing is, just for some perspective, Jesse's painting himself like he is not a an excellent runner. And we started this little segment with him going, I was just out on a short run and I was in like mile three of the run. I could not run a mile right now if my life, literally if my life depended on it. If you said to me, 
go out there and run a mile straight and don't stop or I'm going to kill you. I probably wouldn't be able to do it. So <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective, people. Yes, that is. Which is why it's it's great to be with brothers and sisters to help you to appreciate the things, whether that's taking a test or having the ability to do something. I, I'm 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 totally with you. Which in some ways does lead us back into this idea of being part of a family yes. and that family having some structure, like a literal governance, when it comes to the body that you belong to that happens in the visible church. And so we spoke a little bit, not a little bit, should I say that? We spoke a lot last time about the Episcopal view of polity. And so we're kind of moving our way through. And now we're into Presbyterianism. Now, I should say that we're talking about the Presbyterian method of church governance. Yes. And it's great that we started where we did because we can draw some distinctions there. We're not actually talking about Presbyterianism per se. So like, Easy Presby's. I know you're going to get super stoked about us talking about this. And that's okay. But again, I want to reiterate that this Presbyterian model is often exemplified in lots of denominational structures. So we're not necessarily, again, trying to placate to a particular audience or excluding some other part of the audience. This is a conversation for everybody. And I bet, just like before, what you're going to find is that as you listen to this, you might see elements of this either explicitly or implicitly reflected in the way in which you, quote unquote, do church or the method by which of course your church is governed. And so let's start with the fact that we talked about, I I would say like the distinctives. I want to hit on those distinctives. And to me, we talk about Presbyterian polity, polity being that fancy word for just, again, how the church actually goes about its business. It's, it's personal. If it's an entity, it's a way of bringing about and manifesting its responsibilities into the world. Presbyterian for me is always typified by this, rule of assemblies, or I know Presbyterians use the word presbyters or elders. So this idea that each local church is governed by a body of elected elders, usually they're called like some kind of thing like a session, like maybe a church board. But this is in distinction to Episcopal polity because before we were talking about basically a single representation, like a single bishop. But here we're talking about something slightly different. There is an order. There is an authority, there is a hierarchy, but as opposed to it being vouchsafed to a single bishop, to me, one of the distinctives is we're talking about governance by way of some kind of assembly that is more than one. There's still a hierarchy, but is more than one represented. So let's start there with what are some of these distinctives? Yeah. So just like last week, we had a number of disclaimers we had to cover, and I think there's some this week too. So just as last week when we talked about Episcopal governance and we sort of focused on the roles of bishops and priests, we had to say, like, we're not talking about the other weirdness or the other other elements of priest priestness or priesthoodness. Right. Presbyterianism is a, is a complex of theology that incorporates more than just church polity. I'm not 100% sure why it is that the body of theology— known as Presbyterianism is named basically after the polity. Like, I don't know why that that's not even the most distinctive thing about the body of theology that's called Presbyterianism. So I don't know the historical reasons for that. I'm sure somebody could tell us that, but we're not talking about the whole complex of Presbyterian theology. We're talking specifically about the element of the, the leadership or the, the governance of the church that is not just elder-led, because we'll find out with congregationalism when we come to it next week. Most churches have elders. You could even say in a certain sense that Episcopal churches, 
not Episcopalian churches, although they would fit into this, Episcopal governance has elders in a certain sense too. Like the, the priests are the pastors and ministers are the elders of the church. Um, and some, some Episcopal churches have actual elders beyond the pastor. Right. Presbyterianism um, as a church polity, and you could include, although there are some differences, but you can include the continental system, um, which has differences, but more or less is is just different terms. Presbyterianism is structured around this idea that there are there are groups of elders, and that the elders govern or rule the church, but not in an absolute sense, and not in a strictly hierarchical sense. So. In the Episcopal model, we talked about how the idea of the first among equals, which really ends up just being like the first above lessers, like that's how it works out. We may say, like the the Roman Catholic Church may say that the Pope is the first among equals in the College of Cardinals, but in reality, like the Pope is not the first among equals. He's the first, period. There are no equals. There's nobody in the Episcopal model that can overrule, in a strict sense, the person at the top of the model. I know there are mechanisms, but they very rarely play out. Technically, the College of Cardinals could depose the Pope, but I don't think that's ever happened in church history that I'm aware of. So in a, in a Presbyterian model, though, there really is this level playing field among elders. So the elders as a whole govern over the church in various ways, but the elders are all equals. So whether it's a teaching elder on a session, which is typically a, a licensed, ordained minister who is licensed by some body outside of the local context— right, a presbytery, a, a regional synod or something like that. He's ordained outside of the local context of the church. There are also elders, and, I'm, and again, I'm thinking mostly of the model that you see in the OPC or the PCA, even though there are some differences there. The basic ordination and church structure is more or less the same. You have ruling elders that are not ordained by the outside body. The ruling elders are members of the local church, and they're not ordained in the same fashion that teaching elders are. Nevertheless, on that that local church board, which is called a session in, in Presbyterianism, on that local church board, all of those men get an equal say. If if they take it right. to a vote, there's no there's no one person that's vote is more. Um now there is sometimes there's all sorts of different ways this is done. There are pe- there are functions like moderator uh or clerk that that have roles that play a part that may have an outsized influence. So for example, if you have a session of ruling and teaching elders, the moderator of the session generally, and sometimes this is explicitly stated in their church governments, sometimes it's just sort of a convention, but the moderator typically will not cast a vote unless there's a tie, in which case the moderator's vote makes the tiebreaker. Well, that, that isn't actually more power. If anything, it's less power because they don't get to add their voice to the chorus unless there's a core, unless the, the rest of the group is totally at an impasse. So there's all t- sorts of different ways this, this works out. But the Presbyterian model at its base level is the idea that there is this group of men who are, are ordained into their position. It's an official office of the church. And these men are all equals as they rule and lead and guide and govern the church together. Again, there are there's a variety how exactly that plays out in different contexts, different ways. Um, but that's the basic. I think that's the basic distinctive. Yeah, I like that. I think that's helpful because in some ways you see there's there is a Venn diagram. There's an overlap right. there, 
But the overlap is in the sense that there ought to be a formal hierarchy. There ought to be authority and responsibility right. and accountability. It's just how that accountability is manifest and who can exercise that authority and right. that accountability. And so I think this is probably a model that most evangelicals are familiar with, at least yeah. by way of its application, because there's a sense that, okay, there's going to be a group of men who are coming together to bring all of their opinions and perspectives and their sense of seeking after the Lord, but together, not singularly, but together, they have some ability to kind of speak into the process right. of the way in which the church is governed. But in addition to that, so like this would stand, I was saying, contradistinction to like really liberal or watered down evangelicalism or independent, where there's this sense of like, we just do what we want. Right. There is still, even in the Presbyterian model, this sense that you belong to a larger, wider family. Right. And you gain, you receive support from that family, both by way of like instruction and doctrine, but also financially in terms yeah. of resources, in terms of church planting and church closing, all that's there. So to me, it's almost, again, like we've taken the Episcopal model and in a sense said, there was a lot that was good in there. There's a lot we see that represents the biblical mandate, but we understand that it shouldn't be concentrated. There should be a diffusion of responsibility within each of those levels represented yeah. by a group of yeah. people. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that's hard to conceptualize, right? So I think most, most evangelicals um, think that there are two models, right? They, they think there's the local church model with a local pastor that's a, and it's an autonomous church which we'll talk about is is more or less the congregational baptist model to to varying degrees and then they think well there's this hierarchical structural roman catholic model where like there's one right, guy exactly. at the top and they conceptualize presbyterianism if they even conceptualize presbyterianism as though it's some sort of hybrid of those two and that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, even the way that we've structured this series puts Presbyterianism in the middle because I had to order it somehow and this made sense. Right. But it's not as though, because the other element of, of Presbyterian church government is, is not just that there's this group of men that are sort of overseers of the church and they're all equals, but you're right. There is this sense of a broader church family that they're all a part of. But the difference between this and the Episcopal model is that, so I'm just going to speak of like the, the OPC as the, the, the body that I have the most direct knowledge of, right? So you have the local church, which is, has a group of elders called a session. And then there's a, a regional church called a presbytery. And the little, uh, it's a kind of a quirk of the Presbyterian Presbyterian model that the, the teaching elders of the local church are not members of the local church. They're members of this regional church called a presbytery. And then that presbytery is part of the national church, which in, in the example I'm talking about, is called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church of America, where I think a lot of people trying to understand this model go wrong is they think of it as like, all right, the session is on the bottom, the session reports up to the presbytery, and the presbytery reports up to the, the main group that meets in general assembly once a year or once every couple of years or whatever it is. In reality, it's not it's not a hierarchy like that. It's a broadening. So it's it's the the reason that the presbytery has seemingly more authority than the local session is not because the presbytery is higher, but because it's broader. So the 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 local session, all of those men are also part of this presbytery. They all have an equal say in what the presbytery says as well. And so what the presbytery says uh, as 
requirements for a local church, they do so not as a top-down imposition on that local church, but because the men who govern that church on behalf of that church have agreed to follow the consensus of this this broader presbytery. So also right. when you go up to the general assembly level. So it'd be like if um if Jesse and I were the session of this podcast, right? So Jesse and I have equal say on what happens and how we structure this thing and what we're going to do. Now let's pretend that the Society of Reformed Podcasters it doesn't function this way, but let's pretend that it did, where all of us get together and decide how it's going to work for our our network and every podcast on the network is going to do things more or less the same way. Well, if we go to that and we have a disagreement, then we have the freedom to um, to voice our, our concerns, to try to persuade others. And at the end of the day, by submitting to the will of that group, the submitting to the will of the presbytery, we're saying that we trust our brothers and our, our brothers in, in the society for our podcasters would be our brother podcasters or our brother presbyters in the presbytery. We are willing to submit to the will of that whole the whole group of presbyters in how we govern the church, even if we disagree with it. Now, this, of course, is not saying right. you should do something you think is, they would do something they think is sinful, but we're talking about things like, and this is why it's so important that this is centered around a confession of faith in some sense. And that's another marker of Presbyterian and reform. When I say reformed in this context, like continental reform, Dutch reformed churches, the hallmark of this is this assembling around this shared confession of faith. And, right. and that confession of faith as a subordinate standard to the scriptures themselves. That's the hallmark, is that there's this shared understanding of what the Bible teaches. And although there's disagreement at times, there are certain things that are stated, this is what the Bible teaches. All of the unity that comes out of that presbytery or is found within that presbytery is grounded in that shared understanding of scripture. And so when when a group of presbyters can't necessarily agree, most of the time, every time I've seen it, when there is a vote or a, a decision that there is a minority, that minority actually is allowed to share their position. Usually formally, they submit something called a minority report, but they still submit to that. And the expectation is if they can't submit to what the majority of the presbytery is determined, they either learn to submit to it, they, they learn in their own conscience, or they find a way to peacefully leave that body of elders um, and pursue something else. And I think that's a, that's the main strength of this, is it really is Presbyterianism idealized, right? It, this doesn't always play out in the real world, but idealized Presbyterianism is built around the idea of mutual submission to your brother pastors, your brother ministers, right. your brother elders. It's built around this idea that I am willing to forego my own individual statement in order to submit to and trust the statement that is made by the, the consensus of the whole, whether that's the consensus of the whole session, the consensus of the whole presbytery, or the consensus of the general assembly, I'm willing to submit to that out of trust and love and reverence for God first and foremost, and as out of those same things for his ordained ministers who I labor alongside. Yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction. And actually, maybe there is a thread that runs through a couple of different polities that we'll talk about. But just to kind of piggyback what you said, there is, I would say, like a distinct connection and flavor to like Romans 13, Hebrews 13, yeah. the sense of we ought to have to, and give appropriate and explicit deference 
to those whom God has put in a place of authority. But then beyond that, as we're talking about the authority of those maybe who are our peers, that if we're all seeking after the will of God, there is a sense that we all just submit and obey. And what does that actually mean? You know, like it's, you know, in a sense that we're like processing this thing together, but we're doing so peaceably. We're always seeking after the heart of God and in that heart to find unity among ourselves, even in difficult decisions where there might be differences of opinion. I do think that's one thing that the Presbyterian method seeks to kind of embrace. There, There is, let me say it this way, maybe there's like an explicit method or mode by which to approach that kind of disagreement, yeah. but always with the idea that it's not just to create heat, it's not just to create debates. And I think some would, there's lots of memes we could joke about, maybe like the overt kind of methodology and lots of rules and ordering and precision of, you know, like of terms of polity, like this is like yeah. the Swiss, Swiss watchmaking of polities. Yeah. But for good reason, because the idea isn't just to create rules of order for the sake of having the lack of chaos, but it is to process effectively what it means to have doctrine that has strong fidelity to the scriptures and then how to weigh out decision making when there is a difference of opinion and to allow means for that opinion to be expressed yeah and then for though at the end of the day as you've i think said very well to trust in those and to vouchsafe that trust to others in obedience to the lord and that is really hard because i think many other denominations and sometimes different methods will just hit the nuclear button yeah and say let's just blow the whole thing up and I think that's never been what's at stake in yeah. the Presbyterian method. And I think that they that's one of the things that is done exceptionally well. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a and here's a perfect example. I won't get into all the details, not because they're they're starkingly or strikingly confidential or anything like that. Um, but I was recently at a Presbytery meeting. I, I from time to time will will visit the Presbytery meeting uh, at my local Presbytery when it's close enough that it makes sense for me to drive. And there was a, an issue that they were talking about and debating. And the the Presbytery met uh, from like four or five o'clock on Friday night and then all day Saturday. So we're talking about maybe like, I don't know, maybe like, like 10, 12 hours worth of meeting time. They devoted a full four hours of debate and discussion time to this topic. So it was a, a big deal topic. And it was actually pretty contentious. Like it wasn't, I don't want to say tempers were raised, but people were passionate about this. And so, uh, you know, there's all this stuff and there's this vote and you can tell people are frustrated. You can tell that they're, they're not happy that things are not going the way that they wanted it to. The vote is called and people vote yes or no. There wasn't any false well, it seems like the group is leaning towards yes, so we're all going to vote yes for the sake of unity. Um, there are some groups that do that, and I don't have any issue with that if that's that's the way they want to do it, if that's their way of showing willing submission to the will of their brothers and sisters or brothers, depending on the body. That's fine. I don't have any issue with that. But that's not how this group works. So the, the yeses voted yes, and the noes voted no, and doesn't matter which direction it went. The next thing on the point of order was lunch. And so I I went into lunch kind of thinking this will be interesting to see how it goes. You would have no clue that you would not be able to go to lunch afterwards and be able to tell in any sense who voted yes and who voted no. Because people who were were passionately arguing for opposing perspectives, sometimes in direct response to each other, sat down at lunch afterwards and had beautiful time of fellowship. And you could tell that they were friends who loved each other and brothers and trusted each other. Um, that is the hallmark of this model is that the theological decisions, the practical decisions that are made, they're made out of a sense of responsibility 
and fidelity to God's word, but a willingness to trust and submit to what the wisdom of your brother pastors and brother ministers says, what, what the wisdom of the group coming together says. And I think, you know, one of the things that we always want to do, obviously, is try to ground our views in scripture. And different groups will say that Presbyterianism or whatever, this or that or the other thing is explicitly warranted or commanded in scripture. I don't know. I don't know where I land on that. I haven't studied it enough to be able to make a, a real direct, positive, constructive argument. I have come to the conclusion that the early church was very similar to modern Presbyterianism and the way it operates, but I've heard compelling arguments otherwise. But when I look right. at the scripture, when you look at the Council of Jerusalem, which I like to call the, the General Assembly of Jerusalem, um, you see this in action, right? You have you have different figures getting up, giving speeches. People are called to the floor to sort of give a report. Um, and then uh, one person sort of delivers the verdict that the church has come to the consensus of. And and there's no there's no arguing afterwards. There's no uh, there's no dissent that we see. The next the next business order is all right, how do we tell the church about this? They write a letter and they send the letter out. Right. When you think of like the Council of Nicaea, it was a very similar kind of thing. I like to call that the first general assembly of Nicaea, right? That's that's the church coming together, all of the elders of the church coming together to decide a theological topic. And then they bring that back to their bodies. They bring that back to their local churches. They communicate what that body is determined. In this case, they brought with them a creed that the church had written, signed off on to be used in, in the, the corporate confession of faith. That, I think, is the strength of this model, is that it's designed to bring about unity in the midst of doctrinal fidelity without sacrificing that doctrinal fidelity. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, important to note, as we said before, casually about borrowing from R.C. Sproul, that everybody's a theologian. Every every church has a polity. So you have to choose, or if you're not choosing— there is some kind of normative default process by which decisions are made. So you can't run away from these kind of discussions. We're hoping that as you hear this, as you're processing it, maybe as you're talking about it with others, that you're thinking about how it is that your church handles these issues. And I think what you brought up, Tony, is really helpful. How does your church handle disagreements? If, if they're trying to make a way forward, either doctrinally or otherwise, to what authority do they seek? You know, what, what is the thing that they reach out to? What is the guiding light, so to speak? What is that path that they're going to walk on? And we know that all churches are composed of all kinds of people, all of which are sinners. And so this means that we do have to exercise something of what it means to submit and to obey. And if we're trying to remain true to the scriptures, that's a real quantity. It's a real action. It's going to come for you at some point where you're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to follow along. Or saying, no, I need to separate. And so I think part of the polity question is how does the church make way for that? What are the means? We were talking about the Episcopal view in which it was kind of a very different than most of, at least most evangelicals think in terms of like a single authority. And, you know, to your point, like early on when you were saying, listen, that view often has this idea where it's like, listen, we're all equal. But there is this one guy. Yeah. I always think like, I'm pretty sure most everybody in like the Roman Catholic like world doesn't have bulletproof vehicles. So like to me, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're already establishing something like practically speaking about the importance of losing a particular individual who has like a certain right and authority to, to grant, to make statements, to bring proclamations, to change behavior and to make something codified. And so 
the, the, I would say the Presbyterian view is, is different in that it's, again, trying to diffuse the authority, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that there ought to be good authority, that we ought to right. have some decision-making that carries us forward in which we agree with. And even if we say, listen, that's not the way I would do it, we say, can we submit ourselves to the scriptures? Can we submit ourselves to our leaders who are going to be held to account for the decisions that they're making? Yeah. And I, again, I think that is a distinctive, and I think it's helpful for us to think about that in terms of what would we do? What would we do in that situation? Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's a good analogy, and then we can wrap things up that I think I think most people will be able to understand because they've got they can connect it to a um, experience that I think pretty much all of us have had. So um I, like many people, am on a team of people at work. Uh there happens to be three people who have the same role in my department. We all have the same title, we all have the same pay scale, we all have the same responsibilities. And then we have a, a manager, right? And so sometimes the three of us will will see a problem or a policy that needs to be developed, and we'll just talk it out and we'll figure out what, what we want to do, right? We, we are a very independent group. We can kind of determine how we do our work, and we'll just talk it out. And no one person in that group has say-so over the other people. Now, if my manager comes into the room and we the three of us all say this is the way we think we're going to do it and she says now my manager's great she wouldn't run roughshod over this but i know i've had managers that would she says no this is the way you're going to do it right that's the episcopal model right right that's the episcopal model that although right. in our conversation the four of us are having this discussion and we're all bouncing ideas off of each other at the end of the day if my manager says this is the way it's going to be done we are going to do it that way that's the Episcopal model. Now, if the three of us are having a conversation and we can't come to an agreement, but two of us say, well, I think this is the way we should do it. And the one person goes, eh, I don't think so. In my group, what we usually do is we'll, we'll try it the way that the two people have said we're going to do it. And the person who isn't so sure will submit to that, to that impression, and we'll try to work at it that way. That's more of the Presbyterian model. And, and so I think that's a, that's a parallel that I think most people can understand because we've all had a boss. Most of us have had a boss and our boss tells us to do certain things. And it doesn't really matter whether we think that's the right way to do it or not. They're our boss. So we're going to do it the way that they tell us to do it. Most of us have also been on teams where we have to work together with peers who are equals to come up with a solution. And we all contribute to that together. That's more of the Episcopalian or the, the Presbyterian model. Yeah, that's that's right on. I love that. Again, I hope that people are listening to this. They're thinking through it. They're processing what does it look like in my own visual church and uh, visual, visible church. <laughs> Hopefully your church is visual yes. as well in some capacity. But not with images of God. Not with images. Yeah. Keep those to yourself. Again, I just want to reiterate something Tony said at the start of this whole thing. If it's sketchy, turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. And that would include us. By all accounts, it's true. So here's the thing, I, Tony. You and I had a really lovely pre-meeting before this episode, um, which was you and I just basically catching up on life. But one of the things <laughs> we talked about is that we'd received a new review on Apple Podcasts. And I, you're gonna listen if you listen to podcasts, you're gonna hear people say things all the time, like, "Listen, give us a five star review," or like, I don't know, you get your oil changed. And you get a letter from the dealership that's like, no, we'd really love, give us a five-star review. Here's what we're not going to tell you. You don't have to give us a five-star review. You don't have to give us any review, but I'm bringing this up because one, I'm just denying against at the end of this, like everybody's saying to you that you have to give them like the highest level review in order for it to be meaningful. That's not what I'm saying here. But 
while things like the Apple podcast reviews don't actually or really influence like the algorithm of how right. the podcast appears in anybody's search, they are helpful for people who are trying to figure out what it's all about. Right. So if it's been useful to you, and maybe perhaps even if it's not, because we have a handful of those, it's okay. Go out to Apple Podcasts or whatever application that you're using that catches all your podcasts and just drop a little review. We do appreciate that. It does help other brothers and sisters that are trying to figure out, should I put this into my ear holes? Is this worth my time? People often still look at those reviews because they mean something. Yeah. And one of the things that I I find helpful when people leave reviews is it helps us understand what it is that the community wants, the the Reformed Brotherhood community wants and what they need and what they find helpful and what they don't. So this reviewer says, I enjoy listening to things that make, that keep me engaged with the material. This is helpful for looking at Reformed theology and what that means for me here and now. So I look at this and I see this person is getting from the show that Reformed theology needs to be practical. It needs to apply to life and it needs to be applicable now. It's not something for down the road. It's not something that I have to aspire to. What is, what is this theology that we confess? What does it mean for me right now? Right now, as I'm doing my nine to five job, as I'm taking care of my kids, as I'm driving down the road, you know, whatever it is, that is useful information to us. So we appreciate anyone who wants to drop a review, whether it's on Apple. I don't think there's any other platforms that do reviews. I heard rumor that Spotify does, but I've never actually found Spotify reviews. So maybe that disappeared. But if you listen to us on a a platform that uses reviews, we do look at those. We do appreciate them. We would love it if you would drop in there. You don't have to give us a five-star review. Don't, don't, don't lie. I mean, we'd love it if you give us a five-star review, but be honest. Uh, we learn from that. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's all great. And again, it's it's part of the community. And again, people, we're happy to accept wh- whatever you like. I would say, and people can go search this out. Maybe now they will because they've brought so much attention to it. If you go to Apple Podcasts, you can see all our reviews. They're all out there for you to enjoy. I think the number one complaints, if we're going to get like a very low review, it's basically... <laughs> That the affirmation dial is going too long. That's not exactly what the reviewer is saying. Right. But they're, what I'm reading is you titled your episode, let's say, like Presbyterian Polity. And for like the first 30 minutes, <laughs> you didn't say anything about Presbyterian Polity. It's true. It's true. <laughs> well, this is what you get. It is what it is. Just a little funny side note, and then we'll wrap it up. I was uh, I got a demo of this software that you upload your podcast episode into, and it uh, it transcribes it and then it runs AI on it to build like a summary of the episode and like it it can like build Facebook posts it can do all that for you. I uploaded an episode that was I don't even remember what it was about, uh, but it was an episode where our affirmations and denials. It was that one where I was talking about Thomas Aquinas and you were talking about Roman Catholic stuff. Oh, yeah. And the the podcast uh, AI thought it was an episode about Thomas Aquinas and <laughs> Roman thought it thought we were Roman Catholics. And I was like, okay, perhaps we need to trim up this segment a little bit. Well, the thing is, words matter. It's that true. deny, that not, those things matter. You listen, AIs. You miss that, you're gonna miss the whole <laughs> thing. This is why we still need the human mind. It's true. It's true. Call at least until Jack. at least somebody has to program the AI. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of AIs, which this is is not, let's do it this way. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.